Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party and Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and organize around the eco-socialist platform that Angela Walker and I ran on. So there's a lot of bad news this week. I'll start off with some good news, and that is uh, these tentative agreements that the UAW seems to be reaching with the big three auto companies. The uh, Ford tentative agreement has been announced. The details will be uh, presented to the members uh, tomorrow. But from what's been reported, there will be an 11% wage increase the first year, plus a $5,000 ratification bonus. And over the life of the contract, the wages will increase 25%. uh, But the uh, cost of living adjustment will be restored which had been eliminated since 2009 when Ford workers took concessions during the financial crisis to keep the company afloat. So over the life of the contract, that could mean over 30% uh, wage increases. And so the top wage increase, uh, if it's over 30%, it'll go to more than $40 an hour. Uh, The contract starts by raising wages uh, by 68%. It raises, I'm sorry, the starting wage by 68% to over $28 an hour. And uh, the lowest paid workers at Ford were in that lower tier. Uh, We'll see a raise of more than 150% over the life of the agreement. And these wage tiers will be phased out over three years. I think that's a huge victory because these uh, wage tiers in, you know, my industry and at UPS and uh, the auto industry and other industries is a real problem divides workers, people aren't paid equal work, equal pay for equal work. So I think that's really significant. Uh, they uh, won the right to strike over plant closings, which is a first in any UAW contract. Um, whether it covers the joint venture battery plant workers uh, in plants that are going to be built, uh, GM has already conceded that. It's not clear that it's in the Ford contract, but that's a question We'll get answered tomorrow. So the Ford workers are going uh, back to work while they vote on the new contract. That's if the uh, UAW National Ford Council on Sunday approves it for a membership vote. So this affects 57,000 Ford workers. And uh, this deal has already put pressure on GM and Stellantis to settle along similar lines. Today we're getting reported reporting that both GM and Stellantis are about to settle uh, for contracts modeled on the Ford agreement. So overall, uh, this is, you know, a big step forward. And, you know, from when I've been talking with uh, UAW workers, they think this, if what's reported is is what it is, uh, this will probably pass. So um, that's a big victory. And, and it should help the auto industry give them a platform in which to go organize the unorganized auto workers. As I pointed out before, there are more auto workers in this country now than there were in 1980, contrary to the idea that, you know, we've been deindustrialized. The problem is a lot of companies overseas from Asia and Europe have moved here, but they've opened up plants and right to work states that are non-union. Um, but this con- these contracts will be much better deals than what those workers are getting from these foreign countries. So I think it opens up the possibility for organizing those industries. So I think that's all good news. And of course, you know, the bad news is what's going on in Gaza. I mean, the Israeli assault on Gaza is clearly genocidal. Now the lights are out, the internet is out, the phones are out. The only people that really know what's going on in Gaza are the people who live there. And uh, they can't tell the world now. They can't show the world now. So we're in a real dire situation. And you know, we should recognize that at least the right wing of Israeli governments have the stated goal of annexing Gaza Strip, West Bank, everything from the river to the sea into the Israeli state. And as, as one of them has put it, uh, one of the uh, cabinet ministers, they want to force is Palestinians to accept second-class citizenship. And if they don't like that, they can emigrate. And if they don't do that, we'll kill them. That's what these right-wingers are saying. 
so that's why this global demand is, you know, being expressed all over the world and in this country for a ceasefire and immediate humanitarian aid to Gaza is so crucial. Uh, the ceasefire will also make it possible to negotiate the release of hostages in Gaza and the thousands of Palestinians who are illegitimately imprisoned in Israel. And that total is now over 10,000. It's nearly double those that were held before October 7th when Hamas attacked. Um, the Israeli armed forces are arresting Palestinians on the West Bank uh, just because they've been activists resisting the expansion of the settlements, most of them nonviolently. And they're just rounding these people and putting them in detention camps, no due process. Of the 5,000 or so that were in prison before, about a thousand of them, including children, uh, have been in prison without any due process, no charges. Uh, so this is going on uh, while the assault on Gaza is going on. There's an assault in the West Bank. It's it's at a smaller scale, but there are uh, settler vigilantes and Israeli armed forces that are going in there. They're pushing people out of their villages. Over 100 West Bank Palestinians have been killed by these settlers or armed forces. Uh, so this is uh, this is an uh, an escalation of the uh, dispossession of the Palestinians. Um, so I think you know the question is: Okay, we get a ceasefire, we get humanitarian aid, uh, maybe we get prisoners released. What then? And I think we should be saying we want a peace process, not more war. And uh, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, about how the two-state solution has the backing of international law in the UN and how it could be a cat's paw to reopen the peace process, uh, even if a singular, democratic, secular, multinational state would be the, the best outcome for democracy and everyone's rights. Uh, it's going to be hard to get the Israelis and the Palestinians to agree uh, on how they could be in the same political community. But whatever they decide should come from the Israelis and Palestinians in their negotiations. And it's up to the international community to keep them at the negotiating table. The U.S. in particular has enormous leverage over Israel as well as the Palestinian Authority because we you know, provide military aid to Israel and a lot of funding for the Palestinian Authority. So I think that's uh, you know, what we should be pushing for uh, you know, sort of down the road a little bit uh, why we push for this ceasefire, which I think uh, there's now a resolution in Congress. It's splitting the Democratic Party, although most of the Democratic Party is still backing Israelis, Israel's assault. But it's, uh, and there have been articles about this this week about how Biden is losing a lot of his support among young people and uh, black people and Latinos. And of course, Arab Americans over his, you know, shoulder to shoulder support for Netanyahu and Israel. Although we do get reports that in the, you know, quiet diplomacy in the background, you know, Biden is cautioning that, you know, we learned a lot about how not to do this when we went into the U.S., went into Afghanistan and uh, Iraq, because if they, you know, take out Hamas as the governing authority in uh, Gaza, you know, what are they going to replace it with? And an occupation uh, is not easy. So, um, and of course, the war to get the occupation is deadly, even genocidal. So um, one thing, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, the, the left-wing secular parties in Palestine, like the Palestine National Initiative and you know, the older, you know, I can't get their names straight, but like the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, you know, they called right after that 2006 legislative election that Hamas won, and they really didn't win it. Uh, they, the, the, uh, they got a 41% plurality, but because half the seats were elected by the system we use in this country, uh, single member district winner take all, their 41% plurality uh, compared to Fatah's 37% led to a 58% to 16% uh, Hamas majority of seats. There were also some independents elected. Um, 
so that gave a really uh, distorted uh, nature to the Palestinian Legislative Council, and it led to the split between Hamas and Fatah, and, uh, you know, Hamas ruling in Gaza and Fatah in the West Bank. Um, and as I said, these left parties have been calling for new elections using proportional representation since the aftermath of that fiasco in 2006. Now, new elections were scheduled in 2021, but Israel, with U.S. complicity, because we have such influence, and Fatah made sure they didn't happen. Israel said, uh, we're not going to let Palestinians in East Jerusalem vote. And Fatah used that as an excuse to cancel the elections because they knew they were going to uh, they were going to lose even more because they've become very unpopular. So anyway, I'm going to, you know, leave those remarks there. I wrote up what I've been thinking about this conflict a couple of days ago, in particular focused on the importance of new Palestinian elections using proportional representation so that uh, when it gets to the stage in a peace process, there's a legitimate uh, Palestinian representative in terms of both what the Palestinian, especially what the Palestinian people think, but also the international community. So let's put that in the chat. It's called Palestine, Ukraine, and International Socialist Solidarity. And of course, one of the emphasis of that uh, statement is that I blast Biden for claiming that Ukraine and Israel are in parallel circumstances as victims of aggression, when it's Ukraine and Palestine that are the victims of imperialist aggression and Russia and Israel are the aggressors. And it's ironic that uh, some of the campus who oppose uh, Ukraine's national liberation struggle and support Russia agree with Biden that uh, Ukraine and Israel are analogous rather than Ukraine and Palestine. So it's just one of the strange twists in this whole thing. And I think it's really important, as we have argued for the Palestinian case, we need to listen to what the Palestinians are saying, particularly the progressive forces that share our politics. We should do the same uh, with the Palestinian people and not just listen to what Hamas or Fatah say, but what the people are saying. And there's uh, a new poll that uh, was reported out this week. It was completed the day before this October 7th Hamas attack. And it, it documents how uh, Hamas and Fatah, how unpopular they are with uh, grassroots Palestinians. And this survey was done by an outfit based in Ramallah. I think it's called the Palestinian Center for maybe social and survey research, something like that. But it's a, it's a legitimate outfit that, you know, has been attacked by Israel, Fatah, Hamas, nobody likes it because it really tells uh, these leaders, you know, what the real people are thinking. And I think among its most interesting findings are that uh, both Hamas and Fatah have the support of no more than 30% of Palestinians and much less by most measures. I mean, much less, like they had a hypothetical presidential election in the West Bank, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the, the head of Fatah and, and the Palestinian Authority would only get 6%. In fact, they, they did ask in a hypothetical election, the top choice was Marwan Barghouti, who is a, a PLO member who's been in prison since the early 90s. Uh, they found him guilty for murders that his organization uh, did in their resistance in the first intifada. Um, but a lot of people see him uh, as Palestine's uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, somebody who, who could uh, lead them in a, you know, a, a negotiation process with Israel and, and would have the respect on, on all sides. Um, in any case, on the West Bank, he would get 35%. Only 11% would go to the Hamas leader and 6% to, to Abbas, the Fatah leader. Although it has to be said, nearly half the respondents, 47%, said they would not participate. Another thing this poll found is a lot of people are just totally alienated from politics. And it notes it's about at the same level as in the United States. Um, on, the, on the Gaza side, uh, Barghouti, Marwan Barghouti was a top choice of 32%, 24% uh, picked the Hamas candidate and 12% Abbas. So uh, 
it shows that the majority of people are looking for an alternative to the two governing authorities in Palestine. Um, in terms of what a solution is, uh, the survey found a slight majority of Palestinians still support a two-state solution that breaks down to 54% in Gaza and 49% in the West Bank. Uh, only 9% support a one-state solution, uh, although there's a lot of uh, other reporting that uh, more and more people are supporting that. Um, and then 10% in this uh, poll supported a hybrid two-state confederation where each state would have domestic autonomy. I think they'd have a combined military and foreign policy and EU-style open borders uh, so people would be able to freely move between the Palestinian and Israeli states in this confederation. And then regarding uh, Ukraine, it was interesting that 71% of Gazans opposed Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which shouldn't be surprising because they know from personal experiences the obvious parallel between the aggression of Israel and Russia and the anti-colonial struggles of Ukraine and Palestine. So, you know, just to sum that up, we really got to be out there. There's a lot of stuff going on in the streets. There are a lot of petitions and letters and open letters you can sign uh, to members of Congress and the president pushing for this ceasefire, humanitarian aid, negotiations. And, and then I hope we, we move on to saying, let's, let's fight, to get a peace process started instead of a war. And part of that has to be the Palestinians need to have, you know, new elections using proportional representation. So they have a representative legitimate in the eyes of the Palestinians and the international community. So while this is going on, what people are not seeing, it's not being reported except in the uh, press from, uh, you know, basically the Kurdish and Kurdish allies in uh, the Middle East is the Turkish bombing of Rojava. And it's it's targeting 2 million people like there are in, in Gaza. Um, they're bombing the energy infrastructure in North and East Syria. Um, and they're attacking the civilian population as well as civilian infrastructure, which are war crimes. One report says between October 5th and 9th, and this is not up to date, but uh, Turkish airstrikes took out 11 power stations in Rojava, 18 water stations, two hospitals, uh, 48 schools, and three factories. I mean, this is pretty devastating. And Turkey today is having a demonstration with Erdogan, the president, speaking in solidarity with Palestine and criticizing Israel. And it's as hypocritical as can be, considering what Turkey is doing to the Kurds. And they have that same kind of religious ethno-nationalism that uh, the Israelis have. You know, that's, the Kurds have been the target of that, as were the Armenians, uh, you know, about a century ago. So... Um, this is something we need to speak out against as well. And Turkey's made it clear they want to destroy the autonomous administration of North and East Syria, uh, whose whole area is home to 5 million people. And, uh, you know, this is a, a force, the autonomous administration that has set up a real grassroots democracy with feminist, uh, anti-sectarian, anti-ethnic nationalist uh, commitments. Uh, it's socialist and ecologically oriented. It's probably the most progressive force with real power in the Middle East. And for it to be destroyed would be a tragedy, uh, not just for the Kurds and the other ethnic groups that are part of this confederation, but uh, for the whole Middle East, because it's a model of a different way of organizing uh, a political community. And in fact, the Turkish parliament just authorized two more years of military strikes on the leftist Kurds in Syria as well as Iraq. And of course, they attack them in Turkey itself as well. And the only opposition uh, were the people elected in the last election recently under the Green Left banner, who have now renamed their party the People's Equity and Democracy Party. Um, so I, don't, I got a link to that too, which I think is in what I, that should be posted. Um, in the chat. Did I get that one in there? Yeah. Uh, no. Gaza and 
uh, North and East Syria, Tale of Two Genocides. Um, that was the article I wanted to post. Yeah. So anyway, there's a lot of trouble in the Middle East as well as Ukraine continuing. But I'll, I'll leave it there and, uh, you know, let's have a discussion. Frankie Lee, is there any way to help the Gaza genocide before more innocent people are massacred? I think our best hope is to really put the pressure on through these street demonstrations and sit-ins. Uh, you've probably seen them, you know, Jewish Voice for Peace sat in in the Capitol Rotunda. Uh, yesterday they took over Grand Central Station. I think 300 of them were arrested. There are demonstrations going on right now as we speak. There's one in Syracuse, which I would be at if I didn't have to be here. Um, and, and so, you know, find where those are, add your voice. There are those open letters and uh, statements you can sign on to online that are being sent to uh, members of Congress. You know, write your members of Congress. I think if we can uh, get the U.S., and as we hear or as reported, you know, behind the scenes, they're telling Israel to, you know, at least go slow, but we want them to stop and, you know, get the humanitarian aid in there, focus on getting hostages and, and Palestinian prisoners in, in Israel who are unjustly imprisoned and negotiate to get them all released. And that can put a break on the war. And then, you know, like I've been saying, the next step is to push for a peace process instead of a, a war. Um, but I think the immediate thing is to, uh, you know, push this ceasefire now demand and push it on Congress and, uh, you know, just make a big stink. Letters to the editor any way you can think of. Kyle Weissman, what do you say about protests on U.S. campuses that call for free Palestine from river to the sea? Well, that it's is that not a call for genocide or just and just as wrong? It's often interpreted that way. It's a, it's an old slogan from the Palestine Liberation Organization in the 1960s and 70s when their goal was a uh, single secular state that respected the rights of all people. Um, but it's interpreted, you know, as pushing the the Israeli Jews out of. Uh, historic Palestine, which is not what it was intended. I think most people chanting it today do not intend that. Although, you know, there's some groups like Hamas that, you know, intend that. So it's a it's a problematic slogan in that regard. And, uh, you know, slogans are not whole analyses. Um, so I guess you could say it's complicated. But I think for most people chanting it, they're not calling for genocide toward the Jews, they're, they're calling for, uh, you know, a free Palestine and, and free Israel or whatever it's going to be called when they come up with a political solution. Erdogan is a nasty piece of work. Yeah, you can say that again. He's, uh, he's a hypocrite. He's a, you know, he's a, He's kind of, a, he, he's, he has aspirations of, you know, making Turkey the center of the new Ottoman Empire. So he's got imperialistic uh, tendencies. He's, you know, he's made a mess of the uh, Turkish economy. Um, he's very opportunistic in his, his alliances in terms of international politics. It's, it's about him and his power and not about what's good for people. So, yeah, I'm, I'm no fan of Erdogan. And that's the case where the U.S. has, you know, influence. He's a member of NATO. He has arms deals with the U.S., but he's been very adroit at playing us off against the Russians. So he, he's, uh, you know, got ties to both of them, and he plays them off against each other. So, you know, he's difficult to work with. But, you know, the U.S. could use, could employ a lot more pressure on Erdogan to, you know, leave the Kurds alone. He, he says he's got to build a, I think it's a 30-kilometer uh, buffer zone between Turkey 
and Rojava on the Syrian side of the border. And, you know, there are U.S. troops there. So he doesn't attack them directly. He attacks uh, the forces that U.S. troops are supporting. There are about 900 U.S. troops. Uh, they mainly are in barracks, but they provide uh, intelligence and uh, advisory help to the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces, which is uh, predominantly Kurdish, but uh, representing militias from all the other ethnic groups in North and East uh, Syria. And they, the U.S. backed them to take out ISIS and is still backing them because ISIS is uh, still got, uh, you know, sort of a guerrilla insurgency they're trying to get started. So they're, they're not completely gone. Um, the Kurds are also holding a lot of ISIS fighters and their families in uh, detainment camps without much uh, support from the U.S. or anybody else to maintain those camps in a humane condition. So there are a lot of problems. But, you know, the, the Kurds have asked the U.S. to provide air defense systems so they can defend themselves from Turkish airstrikes, and the U.S. has refused. So, you know, the Kurds have a saying, you know, we have no friends but the mountains. And they're surrounded by, you know, hostile forces, including the more conservative Kurds in Iraq, Turkey, Assad in Syria, uh, you know, Russia and the U.S. in Syria. They, uh, they uh, are actually, both Russia and the U.S. are something of a deterrent from Turkey just completely invading all of Rojava. But uh, on the other side, they're not providing, you know, much defense for the Kurds. So the Kurds are on their own and making alliances of convenience. And, you know, they're, they're trying to negotiate with Assad to have some kind of autonomy within Syria so they can, you know, administer their part of the country in their grassroots, democratic, feminist, ecological, socialist way. Um, but Assad, you know, doesn't, isn't, isn't play, working with them, at least at this point. And, you know, the U.S. and Russia could force Assad uh, particularly Russia, to do that, but they haven't. So anyway, I, I just think we, we've got to, uh, you know, speak up for the Kurds because they don't have a lot of support, even though, as I said, they're the most progressive force in the Middle East and could set an example for throughout the Middle East because, you know, it's not just Israel-Palestine where we got a mess. We got these, you know, uh, autocracies and kingdoms that are very authoritarian, you know, throughout the, the you know, the the Gulf world and most of the Arab world, Egypt's a military dictatorship. It's uh, it's not good for uh, progressive uh, outcomes. Frankie Lee, there's a huge stop and bit movement going big worldwide with large groups of people vandalizing Israeli weapons manufacturers led by Palestine Action, among the others. Okay, I'm not familiar with that. I'm not sure what NBIT stands for, unless that's a uh, weapons manufacturer that's uh, shipping weapons to Israel or it's an Israeli weapons manufacturer. Um, I would say, you know, those uh, actions are legitimate. I think it's legitimate for Palestinians to certainly defend themselves, you know, with arms from uh, Israeli settlers and, and IDF forces that are pushing them out in the West Bank, or I guess the Israeli forces now entering uh, Gaza uh, last night, apparently, which is, you know, like a day and a half ago for where we're at in the world. Um, you know, Israel has started its invasion. Um, and the problem, as I said at the top, is we don't really know what's going on because uh, the Internet is down. You know, pictures aren't getting out. Reports aren't getting out. Uh, so it's uh, it's a frightening situation, particularly for the people in Gaza, because they're just totally isolated. They don't they hardly know what's going on except in their immediate surroundings. And it's not pretty. The, the bombing escalated the last three or four days and especially last night. So. It's terrible. Okay, MBIT is a corporation, an arms manufacturer. 
Frankie Lee isn't having a carry group going through the Straits of Hormuz begging for retaliation from Iran. Um, I'm not sure if the if the carrier group in the Gulf, as opposed to those in the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, goes through the Straits of Hormuz on a regular basis. I think under international law, they have the right to because it's international waters. On the other hand, uh, you know, why provoke uh, Iran at this point? So um, you're right. It, it might be... Uh, begging for retaliation or at least, uh, you know, testing uh, Iran. And, you know, the U.S. may say, well, we're, we're acting as a deterrent, but um, I guess it's in the eyes of the beholder. Um, so I don't, I don't like it. I mean, they can still, if they need to go into military action, do so without being in the Gulf uh, on the other side of the Strait of Hormos, as opposed to out in the Indian Ocean. So, um, yeah, it doesn't sound like a smart idea to me, particularly in the situation we're in right now. Kyle Weissman, it seems like everyone we know, everything we know about October 7 has been from the Western press. Has Hamas ever come out to explain what their objectives were? Yeah, they have. They have said uh, it was all military, uh, but there's good documentations. I've just been sending people to Human Rights Watch uh, videos that they they took that showed, you know, Hamas fighters executing people, killing civilians. Um, and Hamas says, well, that wasn't the plan. Some people say, well, they didn't expect to, you know, break through so easily. They, they didn't know where the Israeli forces were. They were mostly in the West Bank expanding the settlements. Um, so, you know, Hamas has come out to explain. Israel claims they have, uh, you know, battle plans and orders uh, taken off the bodies of killed or captured Hamas fighters. Um, I don't know how independently those have been vetted and, and confirmed or rejected. Um, there's a lot of this stuff that you got to take on, with a grain of salt from both sides. Um, there's been a uh, interview with a woman who, uh, from one of the kibbutzes who said that the Israeli forces came in and killed a lot of Israeli civilians as they were going after the Hamas uh, fighters in a way that was unnecessary. And she said, you know, she had been uh, taken and they were, she was told she'd be a hostage for a day and then she'd be released from Gaza which may have been just trying to calm her down. But anyway, that has got a lot of play, but it doesn't uh, negate what we know from other documentation that Hamas fighters did. So um, I do think there's been a lot of hyperbole in the uh, American media. I mean, Morning Joe, what's his name? Joe Scarborough, you know, goes on a rant every morning that, uh, is over the top and, uh, you know, puts all the blame on, on Hamas as if the Israelis haven't been dispossessing Palestinians, you know, since 1948. Um, and it's just totally, it's just warmongering, frankly. And that's problematic. Um, and, they, you know, there have been reports of, you know, rapes and beheadings that uh, have not been documented. So, um, you know, I think what we do know is that Hamas killed civilians. We've got, you know, video evidence of that that's, I think, irrefutable. And we have this woman's testimony that the Israeli forces coming in uh, were not too uh, uh, interested in protecting Israelis as they, they weren't as interested in that as going after the Hamas fighters. And Israelis were in the way and they got killed. You know, I think both of those things happened. Um, so anyway, it's... Uh, it's a terrible situation. I mean, that's why I go back to ceasefire, humanitarian aid, uh, negotiate to get hostages and prisoners exchanged, and then push for a peace process instead of the war. Um, and the elections, I think, you know, Israel, understandably, uh, doesn't want Hamas to, you know, rule uh, Gaza and be able to attack them again. That's why I think elections would 
Hamas would get some support, but they would be a minority in a in a broader spectrum of Palestinian politics. And that may be the most humane way to uh, contain them. I mean, they're obviously a very reactionary force when it comes to women's rights, gay rights, democracy. Uh, they're, you know, there's, they're reactionary to the core. They're, they're a theocratic, uh, you know, movement. Um, but that doesn't mean you go try to kill them all because that will just create more people that want, want revenge and want to fight back. I think that's not the smart way to, to do it. Waiting here for the next question. Kyle Weissman, it's not like Hamas soldiers are well-trained, so it would not be too surprising that things would go sideways. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, even well-trained soldiers uh, do atrocities, you know, the emotions of seeing your friends killed and, you know, then trying to get revenge uh, you know, it's it's keeping the discipline of soldiers in combat is is hard to do. I mean, we've we've seen that with you know U.S. troops in in the Middle East doing things that uh, you know they got them in trouble when they were caught. Um, but in a lot of cases they weren't caught. So, um, and then if you have Yeah, Hamas soldiers, I mean, how well trained they are. Some may have been trained. They also are claims that uh, once the, the fence was breached, there were uh, Palestinians uh, coming across with, with arms that were not part of the Hamas or Islamic Jihad forces who had at least some training and were just, you know, angry Palestinians looking for revenge. So uh, I don't think we'll, we'll have a it'll take a while to get a more clear picture of, of everything that happened there. Via email, comments on reports of Russia executing soldiers for refusing to follow orders and fight. Yeah, they, those reports go back quite a while. It's something that uh, the Russians did during World War II. You know, they had a line of, uh, of uh, troops that would shoot their own soldiers who were retreating. And there have been reports, you know, throughout this war that that's what's going on. And then there were, there were a flurry of reports this week that uh, the Russians are doing that. And I'm trying to remember the sourcing for that. But when I read it, it sounded credible. So I think that speaks to the fact that uh, there's a difference in the morale of, of Russian versus Ukrainian uh, soldiers. The, the Ukrainians are fighting for their land, their families and their friends, whereas the Russians are, you know, following orders. Some of them join up to get paid in a country where there's a lot of poverty and low pay. Um, and most, you know, the motivations are very different. So that, uh, and then, you know, the Russians, their tactics are basically, you know, sending human waves into harm's way where, you know, the commanders know that you're going to get, have high casualties. And the Russian soldiers, you know, they get wise to that and they're reluctant to follow the orders. So um, I think that speaks to the, the morale and motivation differences between the Ukrainians and the Russians. Um, but the Russians, you know, they, they what the report, I, I, I I remember a figure I read recently that there are 400,000 Russian troops in Ukraine at this point. I mean, that's a massive amount for the areas they're occupying. Um, it's at the scale of uh, U.S. troops at the peak of intervention in Vietnam. And, um, you know, I think the size of the area the Russians are in is, is probably not bigger than South Vietnam was. That's actually something I should look up. Uh, but anyway, it's a lot of troops, and they they're mo they keep mobilizing more. It's um, I mean, the issue now is uh, 
the Ukrainians have stopped their counteroffensive, which was going slow anyway, uh, to conserve ammunition because they're not sure they're going to get another round of support from the U.S., given what's been going on in the House. So, uh, you know, Ukraine is in a, a perilous position in terms of ammunition because they don't have the domestic manufacturing capacity. Meanwhile, Russia has been ramping up theirs and uh, NATO in the U.S. has made promises to ramp up, but they're way behind schedule. So Ukraine, and just in terms of military situation, is in a difficult situation when it just comes to particularly those 155 millimeter artillery shells. I mean, part of the reason the U.S. sent them cluster munitions for those uh, artillery is because they don't have regular shells or enough. And then another issue is they're sending some of those 155 millimeter shells to Israel that would have gone to Ukraine. So I guess that says the world is interconnected. Edie Dimmitt, how about the Israeli official who was calling for the doomsday missile strikes? Is this finally going to put pressure on the U.S. to address the proscription against military aid to rogue nuclear states. Um, I had not heard the Israeli official threaten, I assume, nuclear strikes, um, but I'm not surprised. We got, you know, war hawks in Russia have been doing the same thing throughout the war in Ukraine. Um, and I hope there's enough sanity in the State Department and the Defense Department to tell Netanyahu in that war cabinet uh, that would be crazy, and I hope the threat would be, you want our support, you don't do that. Um, so hopefully that's just talk and not serious. Andrew Hager, I read on Twitter how some new conservative politicians are working to cut our Social Security. What can we do to stand up for them? to them uh, besides forming an angry mob or picketing? Well, I think an angry mob and picketing are good. Uh, I think you need to, as we get into the 2024 election season, uh, make sure that you uh, make that an issue in uh, congressional elections, Senate elections, and the presidential campaign. You know, there's a real simple solution to this, and that is lift the cap on Social Security taxes. It's about 160000 a year after you've made that much. Any more money you make doesn't pay the Social Security tax. It's a flat tax, should be on all income. And if that higher income was taxed, Social Security would be solvent for the foreseeable future. So um, that's, I think, one of the things we need to we, get, we need to make a key demand. Uh, you know, Greens in, in election campaigns for the House and Senate and, uh, you know, Get your city council to pass a resolution. I mean, raise the issue everywhere you can. Um, I think, you know, that is so unpopular. The conservatives are speaking to their base. I'm hopeful that they're not going to really try to push it. And if they do, I mean, suppose this House passed something that tried to do that, just using the Republican majority, the Senate wouldn't pass it. So, um I, I'm I'm pretty optimistic. We, you know, they're not going to cut our Social Security, but you know, we got to keep speaking up and and you know, debunking the idea that we can't afford Social Security that it's that it's going bankrupt. It's going bankrupt because we don't tax the rich, and it's not really going bankrupt. It's it it still has I think a positive income that will change soon, but that can easily be turned around by lifting the cap on the Social Security tax. The email, comments on Republicans' new speaker. Well, he's a right-wing nut job. You know, he, he thinks that people and dinosaurs were walking together back in the day. You know, he's a, I guess, a biblical literist, literalist. Um, he's anti-abortion. He's anti-gay. He's uh, got terrible politics. He's probably to the right of Jim Jordan. Uh, he's less of a bomb thrower than Jordan, and... and Seems to be kind of a affable guy that even the Democrats, you know, can't get too angry at because he's 
he's not acting stupid like Jordan did. Um, but it just shows you how far to the right the Republican Party has gone. You know, that this guy was kind of the consensus candidate. And he only was because Trump said he was okay with Trump. Um, if Trump had said no to this guy, it'd still be voting, I guess. And I see Kyle Weissman put that uh, link to the doomsday threat by some Israeli that I'm going to look up after we're done here. So I missed that. Via email, what should be done, what should we be doing to prep ahead of the COP28 conference in Dubai? Huh. You know, I don't have much faith in these international conferences and even the movement people that go there and lobby and demonstrate. And this is being done in an oil sheetdom that's, uh, you know, very repressive. Uh, I think, you know, what we should be doing is pushing our own government and pushing our own candidates for a real eco-socialist Green New Deal. It's global in its dimensions so that we are paying, uh, you know, our fair share in, in getting us to a, a clean energy transition globally. And by fair share, I mean, there, this has been calculated. The, the contribution historically that the U.S. has made in, in greenhouse gas emissions means that not only should we reduce our emissions, uh, but there was a study of this uh, done by a consortium of groups, including the Center for Biological Diversity and others that uh, called Fair Shares. And they said that, uh, and this was a year or two ago, that the U.S. by 2030 needs to go beyond uh, what Biden promised but can't deliver, and that is nearly 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. The programs he's passed just can't do that. Um, we should cut 70% of our domestic emissions by 2030, but our total contribution should be 195%. And of course, what that means is that we are helping other countries uh, you know, make the transition to clean renewables. And that is, you know, our climate reparations, our fair share of responsibility for the damage we've done historically. That should be part of a Green New Deal. And we should be bringing this Green New Deal to countries uh, to help them develop, you know, an ecological future uh, and do this. That should be like the main thing we do with our foreign policy instead of sending militaries and covert operations and you know, trying to manipulate their domestic politics, let's bring a Green New Deal and make friends instead of enemies. Um, so I think that's, we really need to push our government to do all they can to make this transition away from the fossil fuel age. Um, so I think that's where we should put our energy. The COP28 conference, like I said, it's a, it's a forum, um, if you have a way of getting there through some climate group or something, I guess go and, you know, demonstrate and speak up, talk to the media. But I think our main responsibility is to change our government's policies. And that's where, damn, we need the Green Party more than ever because Biden is just making terrible decisions in terms of, you know, the latest thing is a new uh, natural gas uh, export facility and in, in, I think it's Louisiana. Um, you know, you got that climate bomb up in uh, Alaska, uh, the Willow Project. Uh, we're still fighting these gas and uh, this, what do you call it, the, the tar sands oil from Alberta, these pipelines. Uh, we're fighting carbon dioxide pipelines where they're going to capture carbon and pipe it up to the Bakken uh, oil fields in, the, in North Dakota and eastern Montana. And they're going to pump the carbon dioxide into those oil wells to get more oil out. That's not, you know, reducing carbon dioxide. It's just pumping out more oil to burn and create more carbon dioxide. So they're fighting those pipelines. We have some of the Mountain Valley pipeline. We got, we got battles everywhere. 
and Biden is not really being our ally on that. So um, that's why we need an alternative to the damn Democrats who, you know, they're not crazy like the Republicans denying that there's climate change and saying we don't need to do anything. But when they do do stuff, it's it's really pandering to the fossil fuel industry. It's still it's still the all of the above energy policy that Obama touted and then bragged after his administration that he had increased oil and gas production. <coughs> Excuse me. More than you know, and created the highest uh, levels of production of any in U.S. history, more than any other president. Um, that's not what we need. We need a we need a government committed to the to the energy transition on as rapid a pace as we can do it. So, I think we need climate action. I think the COP twenty eight conference is, you know, it's part of what needs to be addressed, but I, I think it's not the major part. We got to push for changes in our government's policy. <clears throat> Response to the main mass shooting. Well, you know, I think it's another uh, argument or another point in the argument of why we need to stop uh, selling uh, assault rifles, military rifles. You know, and I've been for this, you know, I used an M16 when I was in the Marine Corps, and to think of that on the street is frightening. It's not about, it's not for hunting. You don't need it for self-defense. It's about killing as many human beings as fast as possible. And that's that's what people do in wars. So that should not be, you know, I don't believe people should have those any more than they should have bazookas, flamethrowers. <sighs> We had a governor in New Hampshire when we were, you know, fighting against the Seabrook nuclear power plant that got into dispute over uh, fishing waters with Maine. And he asked the federal government to give nukes to his National Guard. I mean, it, I don't know how we get people in office like this. This guy was a, a right winger from Georgia that somehow got elected in New Hampshire because, you know, New Hampshire people couldn't understand him when he spoke with that southern accent. And he couldn't understand them when they spoke, at least the rural people with that New Hampshire accent. But the Manchester Union leader, which was the big newspaper, maybe still is in New Hampshire, touted him. And, you know, the Republicans who were the majority then said, well, OK, if the union leader says this is our guy, we'll, we'll elect him. Um, it just shows how insane it is. I think it's interesting that that Democrat up there, I'm forgetting his name, starts with a G, I believe. Uh, had had been against a ban on assault weapons uh, has changed his mind as a result of this because this happened in his district. Um, but that's my response. You know that uh, you know the the, the gun uh, safety reforms like universal background checks and the ban on assault weapon sales that we had, you know, from the uh, early '90s, but we had it for a decade or so. The, uh, I forget what it's called now. The, was it the Baker Amendment? Anyway, we, we had it. And uh, actually, some of the, the mass shooting numbers went down during that period. So I think that's uh, one way we can respond to this. Although at this point, uh, we need to, you know, too many Republicans in the House to even think about getting it passed. If the Democrats took control again, they might pass it. Um, and then you got the Senate. The problem there is the Republicans use the filibuster. So the Democrats got to take on the filibuster to get these reforms that the majority of people in the country want. You know, the majority of people do want universal background checks. And I think the, the assault uh, rifle ban does have majority support. Uh, I'm not sure on that, but I believe I've seen that. B.D. Dimmitt, I read there's a potential for combining floating windmills with water splitting tech to go directly from wind to hydrogen fuels. This piece is related. Okay, I'm going to copy that. Um, generally, I mean, here's my what I think about green hydrogen. I can't copy it. Oh, I copy it over here. Um, hydrogen is very efficient as an energy storage. Uh, inefficient. It's uh, expensive to produce and uh, 
in copyright. Okay, I see. Um, there. Um, yeah, it's inefficient. So uh, you don't want to use it for energy storage to then produce electricity, except for certain uses. And those would be long distance transportation, ships, uh, cross country trucks, maybe railroads, because uh, you pass a threshold where the cost of using electric batteries, uh, it becomes cheaper to use hydrogen fuel cells. Um, and then you have certain industrial processes that require high heat, like uh, steel making, you know, which traditionally use coke ovens. Uh, electric arc furnaces can make some kinds of steel, but where you need that, you know, oven to, you know, uh, melt the, the raw materials, uh, hydrogen can, can provide that heat. Uh, so that's another place. But those are like, like niche uses. But I'll definitely take a look at this article and, you know, see what they are saying. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what the process is. It is different from electrolysis, which is how you normally split and what's energy intensive, splitting the hydrogen from the oxygen in H2O water. Kyle Weissman, looking back on the height of the Black Lives Matter movement after Floyd's death, do you feel we accomplished anything or were we bought off with lip service? Um, well, we, we accomplished some things. We put some things on the agenda, uh, but I think the movement was co-opted off the streets and into that election in 2020 uh, and put too much faith, and this is you know not everybody, but most of the people in that movement, in electing Democrats to the presidency and the House of Representatives. And then what happened? Well, they passed the, what's it called, the George Floyd I forget the formal title, but there was a you know police reform bill that was pretty moderate, uh, but it did pass in the House, but it didn't pass in the Senate because the Democrats wouldn't take on the filibuster. Um, and then what I've seen in cities is um, rather than demanding community control of the police or at least stronger citizens or civilian, I, call, I like to call them citizens because I don't think the cops should be military in contrast to us being civilians, but citizens review boards with uh, real subpoena power and investigative powers. Um, a lot of those things, uh, you know, the, the demands of the move, they, they left the streets and went into a lot of hearings and depended on city councilors who were compromising. The police in most cities have a lot of influence. Their union is, you know, well-funded and, and, uh, you know, has allies, uh, particularly in the Republican Party, but they're big enough to intimidate a lot of Democrats. So um, I think that's what happened. You know, 2020 basically went off the streets and into the election behind the Democrats, and then the Democrats didn't deliver. Okay, that's our hour. I um, appreciate everybody being here. I hope the discussion uh, helped people uh, learn some more and, and get some ideas for activities. I got a couple uh, things I got to read that you suggested, and I appreciate that. Um, I don't have a guest plan for next week. I think with all that's going on in the Middle East, uh, that'll give us plenty to talk about, as well as uh, you know other issues. I didn't talk about climate this week, maybe next week, there's, there's just more and more reports about how the climate crisis is accelerating. It's faster than the models thought. And maybe we can uh, talk about that some too. In any case, everybody, uh, I hope you uh, find an opportunity to get out there and demand the ceasefire and the humanitarian aid and the negotiations for the, the hostages and prisoners. And, uh, you know, be active. I think, uh, you got to keep hope and understand that a lot of times change comes uh, in in steps and bursts. You know, we we may be.
pounding against the door and suddenly it flies open because uh, it, it, it and you never know when that's going to happen so you got to keep the faith and keep speaking up and acting so uh, have a productive week everybody and, and we'll see you next week <laughs>